us. And would you break through in some beautiful and wonderful ways, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we started last week this new series um, called Free from Shame. And, and last week, we looked at how we were intended for freedom. And I just want to acknowledge that, yes, uh, the topic of shame is heavy. It's a, it's a heavy hammer. But the good thing about a heavy hammer is a heavy hammer can break through thick, thicker walls. And I have the sense, we have this sense, those of us on staff and leaders, that, for, that are, a lot of us are sort of imprisoned in some cells with some pretty thick walls because of shame in our lives. And so bringing out the heavy hammer is maybe just what God needs to bring out to break through that. So I want to invite you to, to maybe um, approach with courage, you know, where we're headed in this, in this whole series. Um, but I also want to give you some freedom, too. If, if it gets too heavy or it gets to be too much today, we're going to be looking at a couple of really difficult passages, even tupping, t- uh, touching on the topic of, of rape. And so I want to just say, too, that if it gets too heavy, you have freedom to, to step out to go into the, the room over here, maybe to be alone or to, to grab somebody to come and pray with you. Um, we fully expect that if this goes well, God's going to be moving in some of these areas that are really important. And that's going to mean we're going to have to be able to respond appropriately. And then we're here too, Pastor Dante and myself and the rest of the staff. Um, if you, you're, the door is opening up and you need help, which is oftentimes the case, we want to be there for you and to help walk with you and provide help for you or direct you to the right kind of help. And that's a big part of what the Gospel Academy is going to be doing this week too. So so just want to make sure that's all out there. And this week I'm going to be looking at the sources of shame. And and right off the bat, sometimes when you decide to do a particular sermon, I know it's doomed right from the beginning. And so the whole week I'm like, how is this going to work? I mean, this is like a marine biologist saying, in the next 30 minutes I'm going to describe to you every fish in the sea. Only the difference is that these fish come with like emotional attachments to them, every single one, that are heavy and and intense. And so I want to apologize even right now if there are moments when it feels like we are skipping over things and not pausing enough. Think of this as somewhat of a a survey um, that hopefully is going to open the door for the continued work in the next season that we're going to do together. So... Uh, What I thought we would do for this is to look at the life of David because um, the life of David is filled in lots of different ways with lots of different kinds of shame. And so we can see what some of those sources are. So I thought we would start, I'll do a little bit of a kaleidoscope on the life of David. So I'm just going to hit five snapshots quickly of David's life and how uh, shame is reflected in his life and the people around him. And then I'd like to distill that down to three sources of shame, that just about all the shame we experience, there's three sor- sources of that. So we'll, we'll identify those. And then I'd like to talk a little bit about how the cross meets us in each of those. So five snapshots, three sources of shame, one cross. That's what we're doing this morning, okay? Uh, so strap in and let's do this. Uh, open up, to, if you would, to 2 Samuel. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll pass one to you. Love for you to be able to follow along with us, Second uh, Samuel. Um, and you're going to be, uh, probably the first one you're going to want to look at is in chapter um, 11. So that's page 151, I believe. 151. Second Samuel, page 151. If you kind of put your finger there, we'll get to there in due time. One of the things about looking at the life of David also is that it brings up a really important element of shame, and that is 
the family dynamic in shame. There's a lot of, you'll see, connections between, you know, the sins of one person and connecting to the next person, and it becomes this jumble, and we've all experienced this in our families. I know I have. I know I'm, you know, both generationally, all that, and so this is a good part of the journey for us is to be able to see this in the life of David, too, and his family dynamic uh, as it plays itself out. So, of course, if we're going to look at uh, some snapshots of shame, we've got to start probably with David and Bathsheba, which is the most, one of the most famous pictures uh, in the life of David. There's David. He's on top of the roof in his house, and he's walking, and he looks out over Jerusalem, and there's a beautiful woman on top of another house lower down that he can see who's bathing. And he asks, who is this woman? And he decides that he wants her, and so he sends his messengers. This is the king to get her and to bring her to his house. And then he sleeps with her. And, and immediately he feels shame over what he's done. And so he tries to hide and to cover this up. And if we locate the shame in this story, it's one aspect of it is around David's trying to hide what has occurred. And so um, he, he calls uh, his messenger and says, bring the, the woman's husband home from the battlefield. Um, because he's thinking maybe he'll come and then sleep with her and then he can hide everything that's just happened because she's pregnant after this event. And so he brings Uriah home and, um, and, and, and Uriah's an honorable man and, and so he sleeps in David's house instead of going home to his house. And David says, why don't you go home and be with your wife? And Uriah says, I wouldn't do that when my soldiers are fighting on the field. So I'm going to stay in your house. And so now David's deeper into the darkness and the hiding process. And so what does he do? He says to the, the superior of Uriah, he says, put him in the battle up front and then pull back so he gets killed. So not only has he raped this woman, essentially, we call it like a power rape, and then he has, he has murdered, essentially, this husband. And so he keep, he's trying to hide it. And so he, he, he brings her into his house and, and marries Bathsheba. And then the, the prophet Nathan comes and says, tells him this story that basically causes him to realize what he's done. And then David breaks, finally, and he repents. And so you locate the shame in that story around this hiding. And that's something that we want to look for when we're thinking about shame. Shame is always uh, trying to, it, it impels us, it compul- we feel this compulsion to hide it. And we see that in the story of David, but David brings it to light, and then, excuse me, Nathan brings it to light, David cracks, and then we see in Psalm 51, uh, the conversation of David with God, and we just sang, we heard it sung about, but some of the things that David says, he says, hide your face from my sins, that's a shame kind of a statement, because he wants God to hide his face, he doesn't want to be exposed, we talked about this last week, that shame comes when you're when you're humiliated and exposed in your humili- humiliation. And he doesn't want that to be exposed. So he, he's saying, God, hide your face from my sins. So, so he's working through the shame in Psalm 51 as he repents and confesses his sin. And then he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, which is another shame thing. Because shame makes us believe that we're unacceptable to those around us and then ultimately to God. And so the shame part comes in. He's saying, don't cast me away. Cast me not away from your presence. And that's what shame does. We, 
remove ourselves. We hide uh, because we experience this sense of being unacceptable. And it's at the root of our condition of shame. And so there's one snapshot. And we're going to come back to that a little bit. And let me just keep painting here. So then there's two sons that David have. And they, here you see this family dynamic happening in David. The older one is named Amnon. And he falls in lust with his half-sister. Not in love, in lust with his half-sister. And so then he devises a way to get her in the room. And if we look in um, chapter 13, verse 11. And again, I, I don't know how to handle the emotional element of this because it's just it's a lot all at once um, but just prayerfully bear with as we walk through this um, verse 11 in chapter 13 but when she brought them near him to eat she's making some food he took hold of her and said to her come lie with me my sister he's consumed with lust she answered him no my brother do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel do not do this outrageous thing As for me, listen to this, where could I carry my shame? Where could I carry my shame? Shame is so heavy, isn't it? It's so heavy. And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger, he violated her and lay with her. This statement that she makes, where could I carry my shame, has resonated down through history with all who have been violated, with all who have experienced this kind of shame. It's so dark, so heavy, you feel like you just can't carry it. Where, how do you carry your shame? There's a heaviness there. And I'm guessing... Just given that we're human beings, there's a lot of heaviness in this room. A lot of shame that is being carried in this room. If we could actually see it, it would be overwhelming. And that's why we're doing this sermon series. Because we believe in a God who can break us free from shame. But I want to call it out. There's a lot of heaviness in this community as a result of our shame. What a, Tamar, she nails it. Where can I carry this shame? It's so heavy. So then, moving on, Tamar's full brother, his name is Absalom. He takes revenge on his sister, who's been raped, and he kills Amnon. He kills his half-brother, Amnon. So you see the family mess that's unfolding here, Right? It's a family mess, and this is so common. Um, that, that he, so he kills her, and then he's exiled. He's gone for a while. He returns, and then it just, it just keeps going. He plots, Am, uh, Absalom plot, plots a coup to take over the kingship from his father David. And so he marshals the forces. He gathers them, and they go in, and, and David is fearful because Absalom's power is real. And so then David has to leave Jerusalem. And just to push the point home, Absalom goes up on that roof. Presumably that same roof where David was looking down on Bathsheba and sleeps with the concubines 
of David in public. Now, this is a shame culture, right? So now your son has gone and, and done this on the roof so that all would see. And just as it was prophesied by Nathan, what David did would be in private, but what Absalom does is in public. And so then the, you cut to the next scene and David is making his way out of Jerusalem. Can you imagine? He's been king for all these years and now his son has overthrown him in a sense and he's walking out of Jerusalem and as if it weren't bad enough, he's got his entourage with them and their tail between their legs as they're leaving Jerusalem. This guy, Shemaiah, who's from the house of Saul, which is the other the king before David, he comes out alongside the road and he starts pelting David with stones calling out, you worthless man, you worthless man. That's shame terminology. When we experience that we are worthless because of who we are or something we've done, that's shame terminology or something has been done to us. And so David is, is walking out of, of Jerusalem, having stones thrown at him, and he's being told, you worthless man, you worthless man. So those three are sort of connected in this gnarly family dynamic. And then there's two more I want to bring up, snapshots, that are a little bit disconnected, but they also speak in some very important ways to the idea, to the concept of shame. So as we're doing a survey of the sources of shame, I wanted to bring these up as well. First of all, one goes, goes back further to the earlier time in David's life where he's bringing the ark into Jerusalem, the ark of the, the covenant, which is sort of ends up at the very center of the temple. So this is part of their worship ritual. There's an understanding that, you know, that God's atonement is made on top of the ark. It's, it's the most important piece. And so they're bringing it into Jerusalem. And David is, is so excited about the ark of the covenant coming into Jerusalem that instead of wearing all the royal robes, he, he, he dresses down to like a, a, a humble priest in just wearing a white tunic, kind of like the shirt. I put on this shirt. I was like, why did I wear this shirt today? I thought, this is the shirt I was supposed to wear. And then I was in my office this morning studying uh, David dancing before the ark. And he was wearing a shirt, like a, a tunic, a long robe like this, just white, kind of thin not his royal robes, and he was dancing. And it reminds me of how we talked about last week that uh, Adam and Eve were, were naked and unashamed. And we talked about dancing and the connection between being unashamed. And so here's David in front of the ark as they come into Jerusalem, and he's dancing stripped down to his linen ephod. He's dancing. And, but then he comes back after that into his house, and his wife, Michael, is there. And listen to the interaction between them, starting in chapter 6, verse 20. And David returned to bless his household after he danced in front of the ark as it came into Jerusalem. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel has honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel. 
the people of the Lord, and I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And, and then Michael, daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is Old Testament intensity. So there's David dancing in front. And he's saying, essentially, that I don't care if I am looking shameful in the eyes of the people around me. Because if it's, if it's not in the eyes of God, if I'm honoring God, then I will be happy to look the fool in front of everybody else. And so sometimes we're called into that kind of relationship with shame, where the world sees us with eyes of, of shame, making us to be ashamed. And yet we know that what we're doing is, is not shameful. And so I think of this when I think, for example, of evangelism, of sharing your faith with another person. Sometimes you feel ashamed in the conversation. But in that case, you're doing the right thing. And you have to let go of what the other people say about you. So that's one kind of shame we have to keep in mind. And then lastly, another, the final snapshot. This is, has to do with a man named Mephibosheth. Can we just all say Mephibosheth together? Ready? One, two, three. Mephibosheth. Let's try that again. One, two, three. Mephibosheth. Because I want you to say this later on this week. It might be Mephibosheth. But I say Mephibosheth. I, I looked it up. I think it's Mephibosheth. Um, okay, so the, the word, the name Mephibosheth means from the mouth of shame. That's what his name means. He's Saul's grandson, the king before David. And when David took power, they were all, all of Saul's people were running out of Jerusalem uh, and they tripped and fell. And Mephibosheth, who was a young child, ended up crippled in both of his feet. But he was the son of Jonathan, David's best friend. And so... Um, time goes on and David is king and he says, is there anybody from Jonathan's household that I might bless and honor? And they say, well, there's this Mephibosheth who's crippled in both of his feet. So he's got two marks against him. He's from the wrong family. If you're not from David's family, you're from Saul's family, that's the wrong family because you lost out. So he's from Saul's family and he's crippled in, in both feet. And that kind of, that would be sort of a shameful thing. And so they bring Mephibosheth to David and in chapter 9, verse 6, we read the interaction between David and Mephibosheth. One of my favorite, it's one of my old, favorite Old Testament stories. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, <laughs> just like you all, called out his name. Something really powerful about saying somebody's name, right? Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. That's what Mephibosheth said. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. So I'm going to honor you with what belongs to you. I'm going to give it back to you. And you shall, if you're underlining, underline these next words, eat at my table always. 
And he paid homage and said, this is what Mephibosheth said, what is, your, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? So David sees him as Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth sees himself as a dead dog. Now I'm pretty sure if you refer to yourself as a dead dog, you've got some shame issues. And that's Mephibosheth. Because he's crippled and he's from the wrong family. But David elevates him, and I love this metaphor. He has a seat at the table of the king. Mephibosheth gets a seat at the table of the king. All right. Five snapshots of shame. Let me distill down to three different types. And we looked at this in the definition that Ed Welch gave us last week. There's three different types. Uh, We're going to talk about what you did. The kind of shame that comes from what you did, the kind of shame that comes from what was done to you, and the kind of shame that comes from something about you. So three types of shame. So first of all, uh, what you did. David's filled with shame for his adultery, and he broke one of the Ten Commandments, and that's always the case for us, right? If we break the Ten Commandments immediately afterwards, we will experience shame. That's just a dynamic. Now, we may not be conscious of that, But somewhere deep inside of us, that's how we're designed. That when we break the commandments of God, we are guilty. And then guilt is followed by shame. We saw that in the Garden of Eden, right? The moment they felt guilty, the the moment they were guilty of eating the forbidden fruit, they experienced shame and they wanted to cover themselves with fig leaves. So as soon as we break one of the commandments, one of the Ten Commandments, we want to cover ourselves with fig leaves. So there's a sense in which shame can have a valuable purpose in driving us to that place of acknowledgement of our need to repent of sin, to address the guilt that leads to shame. So guilt and shame can be like a train engine and then the train car. They follow one. So if you want to get rid of the car of shame, you have to deal with the with the engine of, of guilt, okay? And so the way that we do that, of course, is, is like in Psalm 51, we, we go to repentance. Um, and so shame is intended in that way to propel us forward into repentance. The experience of shame propels us forward into repentance. Sadly, though, we often get stuck in the shame. And shame doesn't become a vehicle to move us to somewhere, but an address that we live in, right? We just get stuck there. We stop. And that's not what it, the good part of it is intended is to move us. If it's shame that results from something we've done, from sin that we've committed, then it's intended to move us to that place of repentance. And when we're in that place of repentance... Like David in Psalm 51. This is the the guidebook on how to repent. So if this is you this morning, clear aside some time with whatever guilt you have and sit with Psalm 51 in this next week. And have a get your journal out and have some time of repentance. Maybe you want to bring in some trusted people where you can share with them what your guilt is, because that's an important part of the process. But get yourself into that place of repentance. 
And then I'm going to say, I'm going to say in a minute how the cross meets us there. But first of all, um, that kind of shame, the shame for what you did. And don't get stuck in that kind of shame. That's just a vehicle to propel you on to healing. Um, then there's the shame that comes from what's done to you. And this is, of course, the story of Tam- Tamar. And uh, we don't have it so written like that with Bathsheba, but we would assume very much the same with Bathsheba as well. But Tamar's violated. And she says, how can I carry this? And somebody threw out the statistic, and I didn't have time to check it, but you know, one quarter of women experience some sort of uh, sexual abuse uh, like this, and one-sixth of men experience something of this nature. And so um, we know that, that this is part of our community, okay? It's present in our community. And it seems so unfair and so unjust that we can experience shame for what somebody else did to us, doesn't it? But it's true. That's what happens. We experience shame as a result of what somebody else has done to us. And this is where we can get wrapped up in the the cleanliness language and feeling unclean, experiencing a sense of lack of cleanliness, that we've been violated, all those words. We'll circle back to that in a moment. But this can be some of the heaviest kind of shame. And that's why Tamar says, how can I carry this? It's so heavy. And if you're carrying this all by yourself, please, you need hands of others to carry this with you. And I know that seems overwhelming and impossible. And how could you even begin to speak about it? Especially if you've been carrying it for long stretches of time. But the work that God wants to do in your life is to bring the hands of Christ alongside and the people of God to help you carry this. And some of them will just be average people who are not specialists in sexual abuse. And some will be professional counselors who can walk you through a process of experiencing healing and overcoming, working through the shame. And the cross is part of this, which we'll circle back to in just a moment. And then the, the third type is something about you. And this is the Mephibosheth kind of shame. This is a huge category because um, there are just so many ways that we experience shame res- related to things about us. Right? All kinds of shame. So the disability of Mephibosheth was clearly one of them. He's, he's, he, because he's crippled in both feet, he refers to himself as a dead dog. Really? You just walk around every day feeling like a dead dog? That's, who, that's how you see yourself? All kinds of things put us in that place. We feel like, a, I don't know, I mean, there's no way you just rattle off a list here. Again, too many fish in the sea. Um, but we have expectations around gender, right? So for men, and, and we asked some people some questions in the uh, prayer lab this last week, and just sort of generally some of the comments had to do, you know, for admit, men admitting I can't do it on my own, which is like a shameful thing, right? Um, or when you try really hard and everybody knows that you try really hard and then you still fail. For men, that's a deep place of, of shame. This week I was reading about an article about uh, Father, it, it touched on fatherhood and started to delve into like what a real father does. 
And I just read it and I was like, oh my gosh, I don't live up. And that, I mean, really like the next three days, that article would come flooding back into my head. I could just feel the heaviness every time of not living up and the shame surrounding things like fatherhood. And then for women, you know, marriage can be particularly acute in that or kids, having kids, um, somebody said shame looks like quote unquote, a hundred easy ways to please your man. Have natural childbirth, beautiful children, excellent bone structure, small pores, and an amazing career wardrobe. All kinds of shame associated with those aspects of our, who we are. And then there can be shame connected to race and ethnic uh, identity, um, Two types here. If you've ever felt less than or unacceptable in a situation because of your race, then you've experienced that kind of shame. And then we have several people mentioning to us and asking, are we going to cover the role of shame and honor in Asian cultures? And probably, probably you'd have to think about African culture as well. Are we going to cover that? And I mean, this is a journey for all of us. So if you have thoughts on how we might do that well, we want to open that conversation and talk about it. So the answer is yes, but we're still in, in process of, of, of this. But there's a whole huge area there uh, of shame. And then there's the shame of poverty uh, or the shame of wealth. Both, can, <laughs> I mean, shame is an equal opportunity, right? There's a shame of being a Christian. I know I've experienced that, especially living in the Bay Area on a number of occasions. Uh, and then you take all of these sources, and those are only some, there's a lot more fish in the sea. You take all these sources of shame and you blow them up with social media. Like fire hose them, right? Put them in a fire hose and aim it and just blur. And we're just covered in it. Brutal. I mean, well, I'm going to go there. So there's one cross for this shame. Jesus' intention is to address all this shame. So let me briefly describe how. And if this is healing to you, great. But I also anticipate that there's a process for most of us that's going to require getting this information. This is part of the beginning of it. But then also it's going to take time and it's going to take prayer prayer breakthroughs. It's going to take the Holy Spirit moving. It's going to take the Word of God. It's going to take community. And oftentimes it takes professional help to break through in some of these areas of shame. For what we have done, Jesus has made, and I'm going to use a really big word here, big words chosen carefully can be helpful because they are seared, they're very specific and they sear something important into your memory. Okay? So Jesus has made propitiation for your sin. That's the word right there. What it means is to satisfy the wrath. So we, we like that we have a God who doesn't like sin, who breaks out against sin, because we want a heaven that's perfect. But when we get caught up in that, we're in trouble because we've sinned. So the good news is, is that in Jesus Christ, God has satisfied himself. 
So 1 John 4, 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. To appease God's wrath against sin. To turn away. That's another way to translate. To turn away. If you think about like an umbrella and this thing is coming down on you and Jesus stands there and he protects you from it. That's what the cross does. That's propitiation. If you're laboring under sin that's, that's leading to guilt, that's causing shame, you need to know that God is satisfied in himself, in Christ, for your sin. And James says, confess your sin one to another and be healed. If you're stuck and you're not being healed from it, likely it's because you need the body of Christ to enter into the process with you. So you need to confess that sin to somebody trusted and have them speak grace back to you. Very important part of the process. For what has been done to us, another big word, you ready for it? God in Christ has made expiation. Expiation. Now the word expiation has to do with getting things out of you, expunging. Okay? This is another work of the cross, to expunge. So 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Both the sin that you've committed and the sin that's been committed against you. There is power, expiatory power, in Jesus Christ for the sin that has been done against us and leaves us feeling unclean and dirty. Woo-hoo! And then lastly, for the things about us. All of you who say, I am this or I am that and therefore unacceptable or deficient in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of God, God says to you, no, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth Upshaw, Mephibosheth Hicks, Mephibosheth Holyfield, Mephibosheth Hoffman, Do you want me to do the whole congregation? <laughs> Mephibosheth Iwawaki? There is a seat for you at the table of the king. Because you are made in the image of God. It doesn't matter if you are now crippled or in some way different. There's a seat for you at the table of the king. And I would just end with this statement that if God welcomes the ashamed like that, then so should we. Amen. That's our job. So would you pray with me, Lord? Help us to be welcomers of the ashamed image bearers in our midst. Knowing that in Christ, all that needs to be done for our guilt and our shame has been done. And that in the perfection of your gift to us, we 
can live into the honor and the favor that you have placed on us, giving us a seat at the table. To dance in front of the ark in freedom. To break through the prison cell of shame that has locked us up. Wrecking our relationships with others and keeping us from relationship with you. You are a good God, a loving God, a powerful God. We confess that too many times our response to other people's shame has been to heap more shame on. Would you forgive us? Forgive us, Lord. Teach us how to love like you love, to be your hands and feet, the eyes of Christ, to embrace every Mephibosheth, every Tamar, every David in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we get to come to the table this morning. On night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And he said to you, Mephibosheth, fill in your last name. Come to the table. There's a seat for you. The table's open. Come when you're ready.